Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am, as always, your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Luis Veloc. Luis is co-founder and former CTO of Immune AI, a leading AI-led drug discovery company based out of NYC and Tel Aviv. Before Immune AI, Luis was head of data science and machine learning at ITC and worked at Palantir, where he worked on a variety of ML efforts. He did his studies and research in math and CS at MIT. He has also led AI, genomics, and software efforts at a number of other companies. I thought it was really fascinating to speak with somebody who is firmly in the AI plus bio space. We haven't had too many people who are spending their career exploring that intersection on the podcast just yet. Although, of course, we recently had Varun Ganapathy, who's been looking at AI and healthcare. But I do think that, as Luis articulated in this episode, there's a vast range of problems to explore in terms of how we can apply ML techniques to some foundational problems in biology. Undoubtedly, many of you have seen some recent breakthroughs like AlphaFold, and it seems that over the coming decades, we can expect many, many more exciting developments as we find new ways to apply machine learning to biological problems. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Luis Volok. Luis, thank you so much for joining me today. Our usual first question that I'll pose to you is just how did you get interested in AI? Yeah, thank you for, for having me, Daniel. I uh, first got interested in, uh, in AI and machine learning during my undergrad. So I started off as a math uh, major in, uh, in MIT back then. And uh, one of the things that I understood is that I loved math and I still love math. But I wanted to find um, sort of like applications of math that had um, sort of like very clear, like short-term use as well. So I think like one of the natural trends for you know, a lot of like math majors in MIT at the time, and I still and definitely today was to kind of like you know, navigate toward a hybrid math and computer science degree, where you could leverage like a lot of your math skills uh, toward like very applied uses. So toward like my junior and senior year, I started taking more and more computer science classes and eventually landed in a, in a machine learning PhD program. Yeah. Do you want to tell me just a little bit about whether that math background drove specific interest in CS? So I guess one thing I see a lot of people do is they will come from a, a math or physics background and then that naturally drives them into some of the more mathematically intense areas of CS, so ML, things like that. Do you feel like that background kind of helped you out, drove your initial interests? 
Yeah, I think it was, um, I think it very much like helped me out. So I think the kind of like the natural trajectory for a lot of like math people moving into CS is to, you know, move into CS theory first as like a precursor to, you know, to, to machine learning in many ways. And that was definitely my uh, trajectory as well. So I think having, um, coming from mathematics was a strength there. I think maybe the only downside is that in many ways it biases you toward, you know, over the theoretical areas, which is not necessarily the, you know, the, the, um, the, the only thing out there. So I think I ended up taking, uh, you know, moving into some of the more applied and like, you know, kind of like, you know, systems engineering and like uh, engineering side of ML, like later on in my career, which is, um, uh, which is you know, all fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's really interesting because I know that many people have different perspectives on say that you've decided you want to do ML, what precisely is kind of the right path towards it? What is the best set of skills? Certainly going through having a rigorous mathematics background, knowing some theoretical computer science seems really valuable. Many other people will say, though, you want to go and hack it in the real world, you should actually study a lot of like low-level systems programming so that you're really kind of a, a good, rugged engineer. And so it sounds like you also spent some time getting down into the systems level of things. Yeah, so I think uh, like right in the beginning of, uh, of grad school, uh, both because I wanted to do like some like much larger like simulations to sort of like, you know, assist in the theoretical research as well as because of like internships and things like that I ended up getting, um, like, you know, starting this, uh, you know, this branch, so to say, on the, um, on the systems engineering side as well, which is, uh, I think it's extremely valuable for any, uh, like anyone that's interested in, you know, anything practical in ML. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to get into your PhD a little bit. And perhaps before we get to the actual thesis, I'd just love to hear about what your experience with the PhD was like. It sounds like you'd kind of narrowed down your interest to ML by the end of undergrad. And so did you have a pretty clear picture of this is the sort of topic I might want to pursue for a thesis when you were just getting started? What was that experience like for you? Yeah, so if it was a combination of my sort of like the technical interests with the, I think, the advisor that I had, which, you know, of course, plays, um, it's kind of like a two-sided coin there. So I, on the one hand, coming out of undergrad, you know, what I knew about myself is that I was very interested in probability theory uh, as it intersected with ML. Uh, so I had a kind of strong bias there. And toward the end of my undergrad, I started working with who became my PhD advisor, uh, Devavra Cha, uh, who was also kind of like exactly in that intersection. And then, you know, very early on in grad school, uh, we narrowed this like sets of problems around proving theoretical guarantees for uh, recommendation systems. Yeah. So... What this later turned into was your thesis, which I remember was collaborative filtering with low regret. Could you tell me a little bit about just the path you took to get to that point? So maybe some of the ideas that you tossed around, thought about during your PhD, what your experience working with your advisor was like, and then how you finally got to that topic for your thesis. 
Yeah, I um, yeah. So for the um, for completeness here, so I ended up uh, leaving the PhD actually about like halfway through. So I was talking about the work that I did in this uh, like the first half of the of grad school before uh, moving into industry. Yeah. So I'd say that I had a relatively direct path toward my problem, uh, the, the problem that I'm working on. So there was, I think, less moving around than most students have, which is, uh, you know, nice in the sense that it saves you time, but, you know, it's also, I think, they didn't have a lot of the, uh, maybe the interesting parts of, you know, moving around problems uh, part. So we, you know, I think we understood, uh, you know, very, early on that there was this like need in the sort of like in the recommendation systems literature around theoretical guarantees and uh, you know i think because of the vavret's uh, skill set uh, and also my um was a postdoc at the time and became a professor guy bressler's like skill set it was my co-author we we knew exactly sort of like the kinds of um you know statistics and probability tools that we had to to use there so we ended up um, uh having like, a relatively direct path toward the uh, that uh, that thesis. Yeah, that that direct path seems to be something that's a little bit rare for PhD students to find, as I understand it. One thing I'd love to dig into a little bit, as you've told me, um, you didn't end up finishing your PhD, although you had some really good work along the way. By now, you've had some entrepreneurial experience, but could you tell me a little bit about what your reasoning was for leaving the PhD? Yeah, so I, the, at the, the time that I left, it was uh, technically a pause. So my plan at the time was to take a couple of years off from the PhD, uh, go to industry, work, uh, save some money, like learn about more practical aspects that would uh, I thought would make me into a more um, sort of like, you know, fuller, like researcher, so to say, with broader context and then come back and finish my PhD. And, but it was also partly for the reason of like being sure that I wanted to actually, um, uh, be in academia. So for me doing a PhD was, um, you know, largely because I thought I wanted to be a professor. And, um, so I think also taking this time off was a way to, test that hypothesis. So I, you know, I wanted to, and this was essentially the only time that really made sense to do it because after you finish your PhD, it's very hard to, you know, go into industry and then come back into uh, an academic career. So that was kind of like the, the time that made the most sense to do this pause. And then if I wanted to come back, I can still come back and finish the PhD and have a sort of like a normal academic career. So clearly from the history since then, you chose not to return to your PhD and take the academic route. Can you tell me just a little bit about your your thinking then, what drove that decision to stick around in industry? Yeah, I so I think the first thing to note here is that, you know, I, I'm not one of these people that has extremely strong opinions about uh, academia versus industry. And I um, I think I could have been also like a happy and fulfilled person if I had come back. And I think they're both amazing career paths. Sure. I think on my end, I was just um, more fulfilled with knowing that the usage uh, and the value derived from the work that I did was more in my hands in industry. 
And I think because of the incentive schemes in academia, we are very incentivized to essentially come up with uh, proofs of concept of, uh, of works, right? And that's what uh, you know, academia incentivizes mostly getting papers and papers mostly show a proof of concept of something. Right, they typically don't deal with the corner cases or with scaling or you know all kinds of troubleshooting, which are many times what's uh, in most cases I think what's needed for like actual impact. So um, I uh, I like this feeling of doing things from beginning to end, where maybe I had and for sure I had less time for the more pure research, but I had much more time for you know the, the everything downstream of that around making sure that it actually drove the impact that uh, it could. Yeah, I, I guess from what it sounds like then for you, that decision was maybe less about, I have like a really dogmatic perspective towards academia, I just hate it, but more like what is the set of problems I want to solve or kind of what part of the process do I want to engage in? So if you're a researcher, you're kind of okay with being a little bit further away from application and not seeing your work hit customers as much. But for you, you really wanted that full end-to-end experience. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to to experience that and uh, mostly for actually making sure that my work would you know, uh, make its way somewhere so that it, um, you know, it wouldn't be in anyone else's um, hands to do it. I'll also, you know, take a quick aside here. I've always wished that there was an easier way for people to go back and forth between uh, academia and industry. Eventually, um, uh, for like most people's careers, and it's like really the vast majority of them, there is this like bifurcation where you're like you're either an academic or you're in industry, except for some you know positions in places like you know Microsoft Research or DeepMind and like a handful of places like that. But for the vast majority of people, you need to choose. And I've um, yeah, I've always like wished there was an easier way to for someone from uh, that does some research, then goes to industry for a few years, then maybe comes back to academia for a couple of years to do some more pure research, then kind of like goes back and forth. And um, so I think um, a big part of me, kind of like um, a big part of me, I think has wanted to um, to do more research, but sometimes it's hard to uh, to do that when you're just in a pure industry position. Yeah, that that is a bit lamentable because I'm sure that, there are facets of each experience that can, as you were saying, in terms of your original motivation to take a break from the PhD, help you become a fuller researcher or in terms of whatever it is you want to do, having that different experience for a little while could really benefit you and whatever else it is you're doing. Absolutely. Let's move on a little bit to the work that you've been engaged in after your PhD. You started a company to help develop drugs for cancer, Immune AI, but first let's just talk a little bit broadly about this intersection of AI and biology. Can you tell me a little bit about what that has looked like over the past few years when you were just getting interested in it? Yeah, so I... So this intersection of machine learning and biology in my 
mind is one of the most exciting new sort of parts of uh, of machine learning that have like massive potential to attract you know people like uh, like you and like many of your like listeners uh, as well and there i think what has happened in biology is that the amount of data has gotten to a point where machine learning actually makes sense so i'll give you a couple of examples like one is around the population genomics um, side. So there are now data sets where, uh, I'll give one example is the UK Biobank, where you have DNA sequences of hundreds of thousands of people with matched uh, phenotypes and, uh, or like facts about people, like diseases and um, physical features and things like that. And, you know, I think this uh, scale of hundreds of thousands is like really like where machine learning starts being um, uh, the right tool for the for the job in, in many problems, and also when you think about uh, data around the cell level, like single cell genomics data. Now there are technologies which are really only became scalable in the next few in the last few years, where you can generate data from tens of millions or you know soon hundreds of millions of cells uh, and profile them, and you can capture uh, RD which mRNA, mRNA molecules are present and proteins and epigenetics. So you can imagine these data sets is essentially where you have N cells where N can be tens or hundreds of millions of cells uh, and uh, where the, the other axis is like features about the cells. So this can be also on the tens of thousands of features per cell and they are not necessarily particularly uh, sparse. So this is like an extremely interesting like data sets. Yeah. It does seem like there are many different problems in biology that, at least in one's imagination, if you could just apply ML to them, it would be really wonderful. And so it's nice to hear that there's been this change in terms of now we have enough data to actually make that feasible. You spoke to a little bit about why this is such an exciting area. Can you tell me about some of the unique challenges in terms of applying ML to biology. And perhaps we can use this also as a segue to get into your work with immune AI and some of the particular challenges you tackled there. Yeah, so the dynamics of doing machine learning in biology is um, different from most uh, other like machine learning applications or machine learning research areas. For two reasons at least the activation energy let's say of uh, understanding the problem is a lot higher so for most machine learning applications so if you're dealing with images or text or some other you know business use case typically it doesn't take a long time for you to understand what the data means and what the problems are but when you're dealing with biology takes a long time for someone that you know hasn't studied it for a while to just understand the data and understand all the different biases in the data and understand uh, what you're trying to do biologically uh, when you're trying to develop a drug or when you're trying to create a diagnostic and whatnot. So I think this first feature is you really need to embrace the biology uh, fully and you can't really like abstract away things uh, too much. And the second, I think, very distinctive feature is that you 
really need to work very closely with the biologists throughout the process because the data types are always changing. So again, I'll make the comparison to working with images where typically the nature of the image is not changing too much. You might have more uh, like pixels or something like that, but your models uh, you know, still, the, the architecture of the models like largely can like stay the same. What's very distinctive about biology is that because the genomic technologies, which are the technologies that allow you to take actual cells and make pixels and make, sorry, uh, uh, bytes out of them, is they're changing and evolving so quickly and allowing you to capture different aspects of these cells. It means that if you want to work with the best data, and again, this is the critical point, the machine learning person always wants to work on the best data and on the largest data. And for you to do that, you need to essentially be working side by side with the people that are also at the cutting edge of genomics, because these are the people that are actually generating right now the best data and the largest data. And you can't just sit on the side and wait for someone to make you know, ImageNet for you and for you to build a beautiful model based on that. Because otherwise, the person that's actually working with the genomics person will be the one doing that before you, right? And you're going to be three years behind until the data is actually published. And by then, there's going to be something more exciting going on. So again, comparing with images, you know, the, um, what, what's happening in biology is that you know, it's not just about adding more pixels to the picture. It's actually, you know, it's like you're adding smell suddenly, right? Or you're adding uh, temperature, you're adding noise. So, uh, so you, uh, you're not just capturing suddenly DNA, but you're capturing RNA and you're capturing different proteins and, uh, you know, in the epigenome and these methods change and there's different biases. So you really need to be at the cutting edge of working with the people at, at the cutting edge of genomics as well. Right. So it's certainly an area where the ML person can't really just go back into their lab of all CS people, take the data, do what they will with it. But you really have to, you are really forced to be collaborating with the domain experts in order to make sure your knowledge, your sources of data, all of that is up to date, real time, everything like that. Exactly. Yeah. And you need to really understand all the very strange biases that can happen in these experiments and all that. So you really need to, I think the best setup is to be, you know, in a lab, which is uh, kind of like doing part machine learning, part genomics, or to be co-advised if you're, if you're in, in the PhD. Sure. Let's make that a little bit more concrete. Can we segue now into your work with Immunia? Do you want to tell me a little bit about the company and then we can get into some of the specific work you've done? Yeah, so we started uh, Immune AI four years ago, and um, we are a drug development company. So we develop drugs for cancer and specifically uh, cancer immunotherapies. So these are drugs that don't target the cancer cells directly, but they target the immune cells so that these cells will then be able to fight the cancer more, more efficiently. And the, on the, at a cultural level in the company, what we've always... Uh, wanted to do, and I actually uh, left the company just a few months ago for um, an exit, but what with uh, my co-founder Noam, uh, who is also a computer scientist and mathematician by training, uh, I've always wanted to do was to start a drug company that actually culturally and technologically feels a lot more like a technology company. 
in the sense that uh, we think of data as a first-class citizen of the company and where sort of data engineering and um, machine learning engineering are also like first-class citizens in the company and not just you know some department there. So Imini in many ways is this fusion of what uh, Noam and I brought on the machine learning side with uh, what our scientific co-founders uh, Ansu, Danny, uh, brought on the on the biotech side and on the genomic side. Mm. Digging just a little bit into specifically what you got up to at Immune AI in terms of drug development for cancer and sort of targeting the immune cells. What were some specific problems you tackled within that? Can you tell me in a little bit more detail just what the process of working actually looked like in terms of how do you make machine learning engineers the data you're dealing with a first-class citizen when you were dealing with these problems that are biologically inspired? Yeah, we. one of the main ways that we thought about this is that we should always make sure that the teams there are multidisciplinary in a, in a real way. So the actual, for example, the organizational structure that we use in the company uh, is similar to what's called like the in tech, the Spotify model, just because they like first explain this like organizational model really well, which essentially looks like uh, multidisciplinary teams that are like self-sufficient. So in our case, this means that we have these teams of you know, uh, genomicists and immunologists, software developers, and computational biologists and machine learning people. And that's their unit of work, right? They are fully self-sufficient in terms of uh, creating the experiments, creating the genomic technologies, uh, generating the data, analyzing the data, and uh, coming up with like therapeutic insights from that. So for us, uh, creating this reality in the ground where the, um, the machine learning people were the day-to-day -day collaborators of the people in the lab was um, a big advantage for us in the ability to generate data and to analyze data and to create new experiments more quickly. Right. And it sounds like in the process of how you built out this company, how you structured things, you really tried to apply some of the ins insights you just told me about in terms of applying ML to biology, in terms of making sure that the computational people are really side by side with the domain experts. Can you tell me just a little bit about any unforeseen challenges from just a structural perspective in that I think that the insights you shared are really valuable in terms of how do I think about the high level structuring of like how I want to create a lab to do ML plus biology. But were there any challenges just in putting that together or in the process of things that maybe you didn't anticipate? I would say one of the challenges that we had was on the hiring front. I'd say that this challenge, I think, ended up turning into to a strength, but we definitely um, did not see it, uh, I think, as fully in the beginning, which is that for a company like Immunai, and there's like you know a few other companies, I think, that are trying to create like a similar culture, it's very important for them to hire whether it's on the lab side or on the computational side, people that are really interested in the other side and not just someone who is an amazing ML researcher or someone who is an amazing um, 
you know, chemist, for example, right? If you're a company developing molecules, you need to hire people that are really interested in the other side. So if you're you know, a company developing molecules and developing like small molecules, you want to have chemists in the team that are like just curious by machine learning and they want to learn and they want to collaborate with them. And they believe that machine learning is the right tool for the job. And likewise, you want to bring ML people that don't want to work in isolation. You want ML people that fully understand the value of working side by side with the chemists and the biologists, and they understand you know working in isolation is worse. So, um, and and because hiring amazing people is so hard in general, you often are forced to actually um, you know not hire someone who might be an amazing ML person because they maybe won't fit that well in this culture. So I think, you know, being true to the culture that you're trying to build in these kinds of companies is very important. Mm. Yeah, that seems like a really important thing to make sure you index on, because I imagine that for a company like ImmuneAI, it's kind of, it's almost vital to make sure that really every single person in the organization is bought into that vision. That's exactly right. Yeah, you need um, to build this like from the ground up where like everyone that's in there and everyone that's coming in is onboarded into this culture where where the computational side and the lab side working on the day-to-day as well as possible is like the, the main bottleneck, so to say, to, to productivity. So the way I kind of you know, think about it is that the productivity of uh, you know these... Uh, uh, we call them like tech bio companies instead of like biotech is actually this kind of um, it's not just uh, I, I think about it as like the product in many ways of the um, of uh, how well the lab side and the computational side is doing and you have some coefficient there which is you know how uh, well you're integrating them so the I think this like integration factor is uh, the main the main uh, driver of productivity yeah Let's dive into some technical topics here. So you've published a, a couple of works recently as well with Immune AI. Um, in particular, I know that you had one called Neural Design for Genetic Perturbation Experiments. Can you tell me a little bit about that work, just the the process of the collaboration that led to it, and then just a little bit about the paper itself? Yeah, sure. So... Uh, this work, uh, which is uh, available on archive now, and uh, we're in the process of publishing, uh, was essentially all about like how do we design experiments uh, in the lab, in which we are like learning as much as we can from the previous ones to design the next set of experiments. So there is um, a multi-arm bandit uh, sort of like, you know component to this where you can think of the, uh, I'm simplifying things a bit here, but you can think of the arms that are being pulled here as the different um, sets of perturbations that you're doing in the experiment. And you have a budget of a total experiments that you can make, and you're trying to do them iteratively in a way that you um, learn as much as you can from each of them in order to find the, the, the biological answer that you're looking for. So I think this is... Um, uh, was done with a collaborator that was an intern in, in uh, Immuni from uh, Microsoft Research, uh, various so who did his PhD with uh, with Mike Jordan Berkeley, and um, this again was all about like how do you uh, do as many iterations of experiments with learning from the data 
and more experiments and learning from the data so that you find the answer that you want as quickly as possible. So at this point, let's move a little bit beyond your work at Immune AI. And I'd just love for you to tell me a little bit about some particularly exciting work you've seen in the broader ML plus biology space recently. Yeah, there's so many, um, so many interesting things there. Um, one that I think probably many of your listeners heard is uh, is AlphaFold. So this is a work by by DeepMind, and I think it's like uh, you know, at its uh, best an example of how machine learning can really solve problems that were not solvable, uh, that had not been solved there before. The um, I'll give one other uh, example that I really uh, liked from uh, last year, which is this uh, paper called. So it's a paper called a Compositional Perturbation Autoencoder for Single Cell Response Modeling. So this is a collaboration by uh, an amazing machine learning group in uh, Munich with uh, Facebook AI. And uh, what this work allowed to do is to essentially predict what will happen to cells when you have different perturbations applied to them. So they did this like deep generative model where you can... Um, it allows you to uh, predict uh, how, for example, giving different dosages of different drugs to a cell, what will that do to the to the resulting cell in terms of like gene expression or like protein expression? So it allows you to have these uh, interpretable like embeddings uh, as well, and um, and I think this work was like I think also like one of the best examples uh, recently of how like you need like fairly involved models that had not solved that problem before and that really allow you to do these like perturbation predictions uh, well. Yeah, there's actually something in what you just said that I wanted to dig into a moment, if you don't mind. You mentioned um, interpretable embeddings, and that just makes me think about there are some problems that the general ML space is trying to solve right now. So interpretability is kind of this big debate in ML. In general, there's also attempts to figure out how do we do low resource machine learning dealing with cases where there isn't a lot of data? How do you get things like semi-supervised learning to work? And you had also just mentioned earlier that now biology is in that place where, well, we have enough data in order to make ML feasible. But I'm curious if there's much work that you're aware of just looking at kind of analogs of these problems in terms of like low resource ML or looking at interpretability, but specifically in the biology space. Yeah, I think around interpretability, there is tons of interesting work in uh, in bio happening. So typically, um, one of the main reasons that you um, want interpretability in a machine learning model for biology is that it can help you find drug targets better, right? So if you can, for example, understand how perturbing one of the inputs in the cell will drive the cell closer to the behavior that you want, that can suddenly become an idea for a drug target. So there's a a lot of interesting work there as well. On the genomics side, uh, on sorry, the population genomics side, there is also like work around understanding how specific mutations uh, might be driving disease and things like that. So um, interpretability in general for biology is um, it's a um, very interesting area. Yeah, 
I guess the next thing I'd I'd love to know about is, as you mentioned, you recently left Immune AI. Could you tell me just a little bit about your personal next steps? What sorts of problems are exciting you right now? What you kind of want to tackle next? Yeah, I uh, so ever since I started working uh, with biology, this is something that I've uh, totally like fall in love with. I think it's the one of the most impactful um, things you can do with a machine learning background, I think is work in, uh, in biology. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to, to found a company and um, to do a lot of um, very impactful things there as well. And uh, right now I'm essentially in the process of uh, exploring different areas for, um, uh, for possibly uh, like a next venture. Uh, and I, uh, think there's a very strong prior toward like working with uh, biology again. So I think there is this mixture of how in- interesting and large the data is, uh, but most importantly, the impact that you can have in the, in the world with discovering new drugs, with diagnosing disease, with better understanding people is, uh, is just amazing. And there's so much room for, you know, people with a background, like many of your listeners to, um, uh, to work there. So. I'm, um, you know, I th- right now there's a lot of interesting early machine learning work in uh, molecule design and structural biology. There's lots of interesting things in neuroscience and better understanding brain function. So many systems biology work and um, I think all these areas are extremely interesting for me and uh, I would encourage listeners to check it out as well. Yeah, and towards that, would you have any suggestions for somebody possibly interested in taking that path you did? So somebody who is an ML researcher or has more of a computational background, but wants to get their feet wet in that intersection? Yeah, I think the main things I would recommend if you are in grad school as to find uh, you know the right computational biology you know seminars or something like that first and just like start like listening in and mingling with uh, people that are in this um, intersection and if it really interests you you know really find a great computational collaborator or even an advisor uh, which uh, is really at this intersection and has access to uh, amazing data and to um, to the best data out there and uh, and whether you're in industry or in uh, in academia, just taking some intro bio classes, I think, is uh, is great. So as I mentioned before, there is this uh, activation energy uh, for getting uh, to becoming productive in the, in ML bio, which is higher than in other fields. So just learning uh, basic bio will is both very interesting and it will serve you along the way there. Yeah, I do think that. For ML people in general, or people with a computational background, having some solid background in like a lot of the different areas of the sciences just seems like a, a really valuable set of exposures to have. I know that like in my college experience, we were kind of forced to do physics, biochemistry, all of that. And I guess for people who are going into ML and could imagine themselves possibly being interested in seeing how their work impacts or intersects with the more basic sciences. At the very least, as you said, having that like intro curriculum, being exposed to people who are really focused on the area is just immensely valuable. 
Just as a, a wrapping up question here for some closing thoughts, I'd love to hear more about your your outlook for the field more broadly, what your predictions are just for what AI and biology, that intersection is going to look like over the next couple of decades. Yeah, I. so there is this um, blog post by uh, Anderson Horvitz, the, the VC, I think it was something like already like over 10 or 15 years ago around like software is eating the world. And uh, there was, uh, they redid this, I think a couple of years ago with uh, bio is eating the world. And um, I think this intersection of like tech and bio is um, one of the most exciting things out there. It's like kind of on the magnitude of the internet and of the night, internet in the nineties kind of thing. So I think one of my things I really believe in is that a very large percentage of the best machine learning people in the next 10 to 15 years, we'll go into biology. I think right now, maybe um, you know, a few percent of the best uh, ML people in PhD programs end up going into biology. And I think this number is going to go to over 30 uh, or 40% in the next 10 to 15 years. And uh, another thing that I really believe in is that a lot of the largest uh, healthcare and pharmaceutical companies uh, 20 years from now a lot of them are just being born now and they will be extremely, um, they are not going to be pure tech companies, but they will have a uh, strong like tech culture uh, and uh, this like data centricness uh, uh, focused them as well. So I think the, uh, the largest pharma companies of the next like 20 to 30 years, I think a lot of them will not be uh, just the, the names that we know now that's been around for like dozens of years already. Yeah, that'll that'll be really interesting to see. But as you said, I can imagine that development just because it seems like right now, figuring out how we can apply ML to the basic sciences is in a really nascent stage. We are seeing a lot of developments, a lot of very exciting ones. As you mentioned, AlphaFold, I know that Yashua Bengio's lab has been working on GFlow nets inspired by the problem of drug discovery. And so it seems like there's a lot of fodder for applying modern, powerful, deep learning techniques to many of the problems of biology. But at the same time, there is so much space left to be explored. And I'm sure that the companies that really try to leverage that intersection, like what you've been doing before, and I'm sure what you'll continue doing into the future, um, I can imagine them just really growing and having an impact in the next couple of decades as well. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Well, Luis, it was wonderful speaking with you. I want to thank you just for all of your insights into this fascinating uh, intersection of, of AI and biology and for everything you're doing in that in that space. I'm also very excited just to see whatever it is you end up doing next, what problem you choose to tackle. And um, I hope that listeners will be somewhat inspired by by your journey and perhaps that some of them will go ahead and start exploring this area themselves. Thank you so much, Daniel. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. 
If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.